0: I'm not a fan of Barbara Streisand. Warren, on the other hand, has seen Beaches 17 times. And he cried every time. Not me. In Beaches, as some some others of you might know, Barbara Streisand sings, God is watching us from a distance. What do you think of that lyric? God is watching us from a distance. It's more damning than comforting, isn't it? If a parent was watching their neighbour's children uh, from a distance, in a pool for instance, would they notice if there was one less head bobbing around? Would they get there in time? What if a parent was watching their own kids playing in a park but from a distance? Imagine there's some minor fall, there's some tears, but the parent strangely stays there at a distance. You start to wonder, Is there an issue with visitors' rights? Is there an AVO? Is that parent estranged and powerless? God is watching us from a distance implies those sorts of images too, doesn't it? Streisand seems to be saying, God may be all-seeing, but he's far from personally involved. He may be creator, but now he's disinterested or estranged. We're going to go through Psalm 139, line by line now, and see how wrong Streisand is. Psalm 139 has a theme that God is both magnificent and personally involved. You'll find it helpful to have it open next to you. It's on page 444, or 974 in the large print Bibles. Now we'll just bow our heads briefly and pray before we begin. God, please speak clearly to each of us now through your word, the Bible. Challenge us, encourage us, inspire us. Amen. Well, firstly, you'll see that there are some comments immediately underneath that heading, Psalm 139. It says, for the director of music. These are original instructions that actually went with the The psalm, with the psalm. Psalms are actually lyrics to a song that would have been sung during Jewish religious services or festivals. And the author specifically is named too as David. That's King David. He slew Goliath, uh, father of Solomon, ancestor of Jesus too. He wrote many other psalms. His most famous one would have to be Psalm 23, wouldn't it? The, The Lord is my shepherd. He was a shepherd boy before he became king. And he lived about 1,000 BC, so 3,000 years ago. David starts off in verse 1 talking about how all-seeing God is. But it's different to the watching us from a distance that we just spoke about, isn't it? This speaks in poetic terms of how familiar God is with each of us. God knows us as if he's examined us in minute detail even the secret corners of our soul. Have a look from verse 1 with me. O Lord, you have searched me and you know me. You know when I sit and when I rise. You perceive my thoughts from afar. You discern my going out and my lying down. You are familiar with all my ways. You see, even our mundane details and even our very thoughts are known to God. It strikes me that this knowledge... Is specifically personal isn't it it's not saying you know everything O God it's actually saying you are familiar with all my ways and it goes on explaining how complete God's understanding is of us he even knows our thoughts and our words in verse 4 it says before a word is on my tongue you know it completely O Lord Wow how does that make you feel on one hand A little uncomfortable, perhaps, when you think back to those not-so-kind thoughts or words from yesterday or last week. There are no dirty secrets undiscovered. Yet, on the other hand, if God does know all this about me, and yet still accepts and loves me, that is quite something, isn't it? Verses 5 and 6 go on to paint a picture that this is intensely personal. David feels hemmed in, enveloped. This isn't the sort of claustrophobic enveloped. It's not that he's surrounded and trapped. It's more that he's uh, sorry I lost my place. It's more that he's lovingly enfolded in God's arms. Verse six concludes that the knowledge is too wonderful for me. The theme, it's, it's too overwhelming to get my head around. Let's read from verse six: "You hem me in behind and before." You have laid your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me, too lofty for me to attain. Why is this knowledge so hard to get his head around? Because I guess it seems inconceivable that the all-powerful God, the all-seeing God who created the whole universe, would actually intimately know each one of us and be understanding of our human frailty and genuinely caring for us personally. So to summarise that first section of verses 1 to 6, the picture is painted by David that God is not only all-seeing, but also staggeringly involved and personally connected with each one of us. In verses 7 to 12, the theme changes from God being all-seeing to God being all-present. That is, God is everywhere. David muses about this extent of everywhere. It's not that he's personally trying to escape God, more that he's trying to sound the depths of love divine, as the old Wesley hymn goes. He's thinking, is it possible to run away from God? No. If I went to heaven or hell, could I escape God? No. If I travelled to far continents, could I escape God? No. Could I avoid God in the darkness? No. even the darkness will not be dark to you. The night will shine like the day, for darkness is as light to you. I remember when Ange and I moved overseas, a friend of ours wrote verses nine and 10 on a card for us. "If I settle on the far side of the tea, uh, far side of the tea. if I settle on the far side of the sea, even there your hand will guide me. Your right hand will hold me fast." And that was a reassuring thought. It's good to know that we are safe and close to God no matter where we are. The idea, that we're, the, the idea that God is everywhere is not just a geographical one either. If we're lonely or alone or disconnected for whatever reason, God is still there with us. The psalm talks about God being with us throughout our whole time, from cradle to grave. Actually, even before cradle, even before conception and even after grave as well. So whatever condition I'm in, whatever state of mind I'm in, God is there. If I'm a dying person in a coma, beyond the reach of my grieving family, God is still there with me. If I'm a profoundly disabled person, sadly beyond the communication of even skilled carers, God is still there with me. Now we get on to the next section that this psalm is renowned for. Verses 13 to 18. I've got a banner here. Can you see it if I put it here? This was when Georgina was baptised here in this church, almost 10 years ago. Going to stay. I'm not sure if you can read it. it. It says, You created my inmost being. You knit me together in my mother's womb. And... Um, so, See that I did choose this psalm to preach on for a reason. Um, Why is this passage popular for births and baptisms? Well, it resonates, doesn't it, in a way that only poetry can. And it speaks powerfully of the miracles of conception, gestation, birth, and how God has lovingly created each one of us. Let's read from verse thirteen. This strikes a deep and special chord with many of us, that miracle of conception and gestation and birth. I remember hearing a comment of this on this passage too as a teenager and it stayed with me to this day. And that is, God doesn't create junk. God doesn't create junk. The psalm goes on to talk about how not only were we each lovingly and intricately created by God but that our very lives were designed carefully by God too. A baby apparently has several trillion cells, so knitting one is not straightforward. And knitting together all the events and people and learnings in a life is not straightforward either. Let's continue reading at verse 16. All the days ordained for me were written in your book before one of them came to be. Isn't that staggering? Not only did God create us and know us intimately, he even knows our future. Actually, this is saying more than that, isn't it? It's not just saying he knows our future, that he actually wrote our future, the whole story, before we were even born. Wow, what do you think about that? We did talk about that last year, didn't we? If our whole lives are preordained, then does that mean we're just little puppets? Can we be held responsible for our actions if we have no choice? Are we just like programmed robots or something? No, definitely not. Responsibility and preordination are flip sides of the same coin. What I mean to say is that on one hand, God is sovereign. He is completely in control and he knows, even chooses what we're going to do. That's what verse 16 is talking about. But on the other hand, we make our choices and we are fully responsible for what we do, aren't we? The paths that we take. And that makes sense to me. For example, earlier this week I should have cleaned up when I said I was going to clean up but I thought first I'll just watch a little bit of TV which became a lot of TV and um, you probably know the story or another variation of that story. But the point is that deep down I know that it was my responsibility. So, as I said, responsibility and preordination are flip sides of the same coin. Or to change the analogy, they're in a sort of creative tension. In the book of Luke, chapter 22, this gives a great example of this tension. The situation is it's the Last Supper and Jesus knows that Judas is about to betray him. This betrayal is both preordained and also the decision and responsibility of Judas. I'll read Luke 22:22. But the hand of him who is going to betray me is with mine on the table. The son of man will go as it has been decreed, but woe to that man who betrays him. From the mouth of Jesus, you can see the responsibility and the preordination hand in hand, can't you? Now, are you starting to get a brain overload yet? As you try and get your head around some of these uh, pictures that are painted in the psalm? If so, you're not alone. David also struggled. He even suggests that he tried for so long to get his head around it that he actually fell asleep. I'm reading from verse 17. How precious to me are your thoughts, O God! How vast is the sum of them! Were I to count them, they would outnumber the grains of sand... When I awake, I'm still with you. Do you get that idea that he was counting the grains of sand and fell asleep? So the idea is that we sometimes struggle, don't we, to properly grasp God's presence and familiarity and personal involvement that this psalm is talking about. This same idea was also raised in that second reading that we had from Ephesians. It said in Ephesians 3.18, I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, may have power, together with all the saints. And here's the key part: to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ, and to know that this love surpa- that surpasses knowledge. Oh sorry, and to know this love that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. I think Psalm 139 can help us to grasp how wide and long and high and deep the love of Christ is. And one thing that impresses me about David is how passionate he is. Do you feel that too? I think most of us wish we were more passionate about God too, don't we? Surely this is a step in the right direction for what we need then to grasp how wide, high, deep uh, and long the love of Christ is for us. But I didn't feel that I could discuss Psalm 139 talks about us being knit together in our mother's womb by our loving God without also mentioning the topic of abortion. But, and I must admit I am relieved by this, there will also be a topical sermon on abortion this year on June 21st. In fact, I think, Warren, you're doing it. And there are also, by the way, going to be quite some other quite interesting topical sermons in June and July on cloning and stem cells, homosexuality, sex and marriage, sex and children. So just a quick plug there, a word from our sponsors. So I'm going to mention abortion just reasonably briefly and then move on. There will be a question time at the end anyway. The reason that Psalm 139 and other passages like it have something to say about abortion is that they paint a picture of a carefully created baby from the very outset don't they? Whereas the arguments for abortion are usually along the lines of in the early stages the fetus is not truly human it's just a bunch of cells and so to abort it then is not too bad because it's not really a human. Do you get that? I've got some statistics about abortion just to give you some scope. There are approximately 90,000 abortions in Australia every year That is one abortion for every 2.8 births, or 20.9 abortions per 1,000 women. In Australia, one in three women will have an abortion during their lifetime. This doesn't include statistics for chemical abortions such as the morning after contraception pill either. In a, a survey in 2004, Australia and New Zealand were equal second highest in abortion rates amongst developed countries. The USA was first. One in six couples in Australia are are infertile. In 2002, there were 73 general adoptions. There were also 370 overseas adoptions. And there were also almost 7,000 births due to successful fertility treatment. And the last statistic I've got is that abortion is most commonly performed four to 10 weeks after conception. So, we've got a picture for you of a a fetus at four weeks. About to magically appear. There you go. So, this is only about five millimetres long, by the way. Uh, You can see it's no longer a cluster of cells. It's prawn-shaped. And uh, it does have a rudimentary spinal column. And a heart has appeared. We have another picture for a, a fetus at eight weeks. There you go. At eight weeks, the heart is beating at 150 beats per minute. All internal organs are present. The nostril, lips, eyes, eyelids are visible. So are the fingers and toes. You can See those cute little toes there? And the baby has started moving too. So that's just to give you a sort of visual idea of what we're talking about when we say abortions commonly performed at four to 10 weeks. That's an eight week old baby. Thanks for that, Steve. So you can see that the key to all arguments about abortion is really the view on where exactly do you draw that line on the status of the fetus? When does it become a human being? An example for you, a biomedical ethicist called Paul Ramsey says the pre blastocyst, which is the first ten days of the, the egg when it's just basically it gets down to implanting in the, the womb. Um, the first the pre-blastocyst stages are pre-human organic matter. They represent only potential individual human life. So you can see that people are, are trying hard to sort of draw the line. Where do you draw the line? Where does this become a human? We don't have time and I don't have the, the understanding to debate any of the complexities of this weighty topic. But I just want to point out that Psalm 139 elegantly states that God is lovingly and intricately involved in creating a baby from the very outset. That's, that's really drawing the line at zero. I'm gonna conclude on this topic just with an anecdote. It's one doctor asking the advice of another. It's just a, a conversation. About the, term, about the terminating of a pregnancy, I want your opinion. The situation is this. The father has syphilis. The mother has tuberculosis and is pregnant for a fifth time. Of her four children born so far, the first was blind, the second died, the third was deaf and dumb, and the fourth also had tuberculosis. What would you have done with the fifth pregnancy? The second doctor replied, I would have ended the pregnancy. The first doctor replied back, then you would have murdered Beethoven. Okay, now we're going to return to Psalm 139 and the verses that, well, we'd rather forget about, actually. We'd rather avoid them. David is actually cursing the people who are wicked and hate God. What is that all about? Let's read from verse 19. If only you would slay the wicked, O God. Away from me, you bloodthirsty men. They speak of you with evil intent. Your adversaries misuse your name. Do I not hate those who hate you, O Lord, and abhor those who rise up against you? I have nothing but hatred for them. I count them my enemies. Ouch. That was a bit unexpected, wasn't it? Especially after that glorious section a moment ago about I'm fearfully and wonderfully made. What is this cursing all about? How does this zealous section about hating those who hate God fit in, especially for a Christian? Where's the brotherly love and turning the other cheek? Okay, firstly, let's remember this was written 3,000 years ago. They were not politically correct then. In fact, they didn't have Jesus' advice to turn the other cheek then either. Instead, they had instructions in Exodus of an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. And they didn't live in leafy suburbia where the main fights are about fences and trees and views and car parks. Their life was hard and dangerous. It was more tribal and the phrase fight to protect your loved ones involved swords, not words. David himself had experienced intense national and personal suffering. He'd been forced into exile due to repeated murder attempts and personally killed many people in wars too. Interestingly, David actually had a a chance to kill his persecutor, King Saul. And he chose not to. Instead, he cut the corner off Saul's cloak so Saul realised that he had been shown mercy. The story's in Samuel chapter 24. I recommend you read it. It's quite interesting. I expect that if we lived in the Sudan, for example, or if someone in your family had been a victim of uh, of hateful violence, this zeal zeal would be more palatable. God is all-holy too. This zeal is not vindictive, it's closely related to a passion for justice and standing up for God's name. Anyway, fortunately that message has changed and been enhanced since Jesus stepped forward to reconcile us all. Some parts of the Old Testament have been fulfilled or replaced since Jesus came. For example, the system of sacrifices that they had in the Old Testament is now replaced because Jesus was one sacrifice once for all. We have been given further commands, too, that David didn't have then, such as, love your neighbour as yourself and turn the other cheek. So, do I today echo David's words? Do I hate those who hate God? No. Actually, I love those who hate God. Now, we come to the last final couple of verses of this psalm, and it returns to the search me and know me idea from from the first verse. To recap... David has already praised God for being all-seeing, all-present, all-creative. God is truly magnificent and truly personal, too. David's response is interesting. It's willing and earnest submission to God and repentance. And finally, he asks if he can continue with God forever. This is a bit more humble than you'd expect from a king, isn't it? Let's read from verse 23. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there's any offensive way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. I think it's also a bit reminiscent of his most famous psalm, Psalm 23, when he says, Surely goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. In both psalms, David is responding humbly that he wants to stick with God forever. So, let's fast forward 3,000 years and here we are in Chatswood in 2009. That was interesting, but what does it actually have to do with me today? There was nothing about stock market plunges, stock take sales, petrol prices, or even carbon footprints. Yet, it strikes a chord, doesn't it? Because it's profound about God and it's also profound about you and me. The picture isn't quite complete yet either, because a thousand years later, Jesus himself took the Psalm 139 journey. God actually came to earth via the mother's womb that we read about in verse 13. When God himself came to to earth to walk in our shoes, and eventually to offer himself as a sacrifice on the cross to personally pay for our sins, it makes that picture even more magnificent and personal. Why is it even more personal? Because Jesus was already God's son, and he left behind glory and power to come to earth through the the womb and become an illegitimate peasant child in a conquered backwater of a Roman empire. He was even... You know, lived in a a manger for a bed. I mean, it's just incredibly humbling, isn't it? So God is not watching us from a distance. He's actually stepped right into your shoes and then some. And it's even more magnificent too because he came willingly on this rescue mission knowing that at the end it would result in his pain and sacrifice for our sake. Why did he do this? In the book of Romans, chapter 5, it says, You see, at just the right time, when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous man, though for a good man someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. It goes on, We also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. That's why he did it. So in conclusion, we all have varied perceptions of who God is. And of course, how we perceive God will influence the relationship with God that we have. I'll say that again. How we perceive God will influence the relationship that we have with God. Many of us are imagining a God that is small and somewhat tame. Therefore, our relationship will naturally be half-hearted or ignoring God altogether. This psalm is a great reality check then, isn't it? In it, you can see and be reminded that God sees all, God is everywhere, and he made you. God is truly magnificent and truly personal too, even more so in the light of what Jesus has done following that Psalm 139 journey to walk in our shoes himself and to rescue us. We read that David's response to that was willing and earnest submission to God, repentance and a passionate yearning to follow God forever. In the light of this psalm, we need to seriously consider our own response to God too.